Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 116. Well, buckle up, my beautiful friends, because I'm back. I have missed you all so much the past few weeks, and I'm so excited to be back with you for another episode of the Healing Catalyst podcast. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Avanti, and I'm so happy that you're here with me. You know, I know that things have been a bit sporadic around here on the podcast, and I haven't released an episode for the past two weeks with the whirlwind that I've had the past six weeks traveling to India, going to Hawaii, and then finishing the last revisions on my second book. I had to allow myself some space and some grace to focus on being present to my family, my book, and most importantly, to myself. So thank you so much for sticking with me and coming back every week here on the podcast. Most of you who have been listening to this podcast for a while or have been in my community through my weekly newsletter or on Instagram and all the other places that I'm on online know that the past year has been, well, a year filled with a lot of challenges for me. But today it's February 19th, 2024, a day before you'll hear this. And it's a pretty big day for me. Exactly one year ago on February 19th, 2023, my body was diagnosed with breast cancer. And since then, I've had eight rounds of chemotherapy, a bilateral mastectomy, 15 treatments of radiation, and five months of physical, mental, and emotional recovery. And let's be real, that recovery will be continuing for many months to come. And exactly one year later, today, on February 19th, 2024, the final edits for my second book, The Longevity Formula, are done. And to be honest, a year ago, I couldn't see this day. I couldn't see anything beyond the diagnosis that my body had been given. I didn't have enough information or the emotional bandwidth to understand how I would get through the long journey of healing cancer. I didn't have the perspective that my healing team of doctors and advisors had because they're the ones who had the experience of working every day with patients on their cancer healing journeys. And that's true of so much in health and healing. When we talk to the people who are doing the work every day, we gain new perspectives. Yes, we can read the data and the studies and the reports on various health issues and the health disparities that exist. And... Learning from the people closest to the issues is so important if we really want to understand the complexities of the issues that we're faced with. And so over the next few weeks and months, we will have a series of conversations here on the podcast that are going to challenge you and open up your perspective on healing, healthcare, and humanity. And I can promise you this, you'll be inspired and changed after you listen to these episodes because I'm having conversations with some of the most dynamic and important change makers who are addressing the healthcare disparities and the health challenges facing the most marginalized people, women and black and brown communities. I also want to make sure you know that this is only the beginning of these conversations on the podcast. And I will continue to talk about these issues throughout the year. That's my commitment to continuing to amplify the voices and the work of these amazing light workers. And so today we're diving into maternal health care with my guest, Latham Thomas. Latham is the founder of Mama Glow, a global maternal health and education platform that trains birth workers and serves birthing people along the childbearing continuum. Latham is also a visiting professor of gender and sexuality studies at Brown University. In addition, she's created the Mama Glow Doula Professional Training Program, which provides education and empowers a global community of over 2,500 birth workers around the world. She also recently launched the Soft Space by Mama Glow, 
a premium wellness oasis and gathering space located in the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, named one of Oprah's Named one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, Latham is also the author of two best-selling books, Own Your Glow and Mama Glow. In our conversation, Latham and I discuss the challenges in maternal health care for Black women and the importance of doula services and midwifery. Latham also shares her personal journey and how it led her to create Mama Glow, a space that focuses on reproductive justice and restorative justice. We explore the disparities in maternal health care, including high maternal mortality rates for black women and the need for a redesign of the current medical model to center the most marginalized. Latham also explains the differences between midwives and doulas, highlighting how they can work together to provide comprehensive care during pregnancy, childbirth and postpartum. You know, I've been following Latham's work for many years and have deep respect for the very, very important work that she's doing in the world as an advocate for reproductive justice. I am so thrilled to share my conversation with Latham Thomas about transforming maternal health care for Black women. Latham, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you. I've been following your work for many years and I'm watching all the exciting things you're doing with a new space and a new training facility. Super excited to have you here. So thank you for doing this today with me. Dr. Avanti, thank you for having me. So excited to be here. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you. And I'm really excited because I am so happy to have someone like you who is an expert in maternal health care, who is sort of leading the charge, working in the disparities in the community, in black communities, black and brown communities to help with the disparities in maternal health care. And I think it's such an important topic for us to talk about. And so we'll dive into all of that. I'd love for you to start with sort of sharing with our listeners your journey and how you got to where you are with Mama Glow, a doula training, a space, all of the amazing things that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, thank you so much. So you know, I, I grew up in Oakland, California, and when I was young, my mother um, became pregnant with my sister. I was four years old at the time. I would be five when she was born. At the time, I watched my mother navigate pregnancy alongside my aunt and my great aunt, and all of them being due within a month of each other, March, April, and May. And my sister and I are born five years, 10 days apart. And so I really got to watch unfold this life cycle and experience that as a four-year-old, you're about the height of bellies, right? So I was bumping into bellies everywhere I went. And, and I also just watched these incredible Black women really just in their fullness of their bodies and, and also moving through a process together in community. And my recollection of that experience was that it was very beautiful. It felt very supported, felt very in, empowered. And, uh, and also they were just witness. They had each other, they were sharing information, tools, and, and then also storytelling in front of us. And so we weren't really shut away. We were largely at the table or in the living room or in the kitchen when these stories were being passed on. And so I sort of, you know, listened as a child and internalized a lot of what was shared. My cousin who I had at the time was maybe like 18 months older than me. We would take Cabbage Patch dolls, which are like a relic now. People don't know what they are, but we would take Cabbage Patch dolls and we would stuff them under our shirts and then pretend to deliver each other's babies. And, and so our dramatic play was even like mirroring the things that we saw in life. Um, those things would sort of become like the rudiments of what would lead me to this work. You know, at the time my mom was pregnant, she also gave me tools for navigating anatomy. So I learned anatomy at an early age. I could describe pelvic anatomy, um, you know, by the anatomic term. And so my mother was really keen on using proper language. So I understood the difference between a vagina and a vulva. I understood, you know, what the pelvis was and pelvic floor and, you know, could even uncover some of the muscles because I was using Gray's Anatomy coloring books as a child. And so these were things that kind of, you know, imprinted on me early. My mother would always say that when we were at the grocery store, she was like seven months pregnant. 
and someone comes up to us and says, oh, your mother has a baby in her tummy. I said, no, my mother has a baby in her uterus and it's going to come out of her vagina. Amazing. And so <laughs> she's like, yeah, you know, she's into these things. And so she kind of took that and would remind me that these were the things that kind of were the breadcrumbs and kind of these like rudiments that will become my work later in life at Mama Glow. And I took these kind of lessons and I think that those things imprinted on me in a way that made me feel comfortable with my body. Body literacy was, I think, a big piece of of my upbringing, especially growing up in a home where my mother was very liberated. Like we would come home, we wouldn't have to wear clothes in our house. It was just very free. And so I came to know my body in ways that I think were probably not as normal, you know, culturally, like we were always covered up outside, obviously, but inside it was like, we could be free. And, and so I just had a different orientation around the body and being embodied. Right. Uh, And so uh, I learned these skills very early that would sort of fast forward to, to color, like my work with Mama Glow. Another thing I think that was also helpful and, and I think part of the path too was meeting a master herbalist when I was young. Uh, we used to go to the farmer's market and collect herbal remedies from the people at the markets. And my mom would get these space creams. And then she would also get like um, our cough syrups and things like that and, and different salves and stuff from this woman. And one day she was like, you know, um, you know, she can come up to the mountains and Larkspur and like learn about the plants. And so I learned really early to listen to plants and plant allies for when it was the right time to pick them. I learned to walk the trails and, and identify the medicine along the trails. And that was helpful for me as a person who was, you know, navigating herbalism and through different pathways, African-American herbalism, Western herbalism, and, and native herbalism as, as a sort of foundational understanding of plant systems and botany, which I also studied in school, environmental sciences. And so these are things that all color how I show up in this space of looking at the reproductive life cycle, looking at birth and, and really sort of the, what's available to us in our bodies and how we should be experiencing this, this event, which I don't see as a, um, you know, I don't see it as medical event or even a pathology. We pathologize birth a lot. And so I really see birth as, you know, a rite of passage. I see it as a sacred event. I see it as a spiritual experience. You know, I also see it as a, an opportunity for us to connect with ancestral wisdom and, and then collect medicine along the way through the pregnancy and through the birth process. And so when we come on the other side, we have become transformed. And that's really what the ethos of Mama Glow is all about. It is about transformation. It's about dignity. It's about comfort and safety. It's about community. It's about village keeping. It's about knowledge sharing and, 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 and wisdom embrace, right? And so all these things are part of like what we do and it's embedded in the work, it's embedded in the teachings and the trainings. And it's also, you know, really like what I want to impart on everyone that this is information that we should all know. Many of us know it, but have locked it away. And so when I'm teaching, it's really a facilitation of, of um, collective memory, of collective remembering, and what I call like really recollection of this knowledge that has not been transferred down in ways that it should be. And now we have the opportunity to reclaim it. And so this is what we do in our spaces, whether it's the do the training program, whether it's a program that we develop for nurses in CVS Aetna, whether it's the training that I, that I, the same training that I developed for people, the Namaglo Doula professional training program at Brown university where I'm a professor of gender and sexuality studies whether it's, you know, a childbirth ed program, you know, whether it's a, you know, breastfeeding, you know, an advocacy program, like whatever it is, like we're bringing this love and this intention and this different lens on this experience that is really about reproductive justice, 
that is also about restorative justice. And that's also about like a reverence for the people who laid foundational, who really put their bodies on the line for us to do this work and also for us to be able to carry a torch forward, you know, and 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 chart a different course and and design something different. And I'm really committed to different design, right? Like when you talk about what's happening currently, for us as Mama Glow, we think of ourselves like really as culture shifting. And so so much of what we're doing um, in this space is about transforming and and alchemizing what's here and making something new. And so that's really what I feel like God put me on the planet to do. And so I'm just really trying to be obedient and and just let, you know, spirit order my steps. So much in what you said. Thank you for sharing that. It was really beautiful. So many things coming up for me because so much of what you described of your childhood of watching the women in your family sort of helping each other supporting each other through this process. It's very much ingrained in my culture as well as a South Asian woman. And I really experienced it more when I was going through pregnancy because my parents immigrated here from India. And so I wasn't surrounded by lots of family members where I could experience it in that way. But I did experience it when I was going through pregnancy, when my younger sister was going through pregnancy, even though we're you know in different cities, uh, very much similar to your experience of having our mother around, our aunts around, our cousins around, friends around, really supporting us through the process and taking care of us and how much that support really helped us, you know, not only feel more confident in our bodies, in our skills and our understanding of what it was to be a mother, but just going through the process, I think, again, there's so much there. And so thank you for sharing. That brings up so many memories for me as we're talking. But I want to just back up a little bit and talk about sort of, you alluded to about, you know, sort of the disparities that are going on right now, the challenges in maternal health care for especially Black women, but also brown women in the United States. You know, I was doing a little research and reading, and I mean, the numbers are really frightening. You know, um, post-pandemic, you know, there are in study after study, it shows that, you know, Black women experience the highest maternal mortality rates across all ethnic and racial groups. And it got worse after the COVID pandemic. And there were some numbers here that I was reading. I'm just going to pull them up really fast. Is that Black women are three to four more times likely to experience all kinds of issues, including mortality during pregnancy and birth, which is problematic, you know? And so let's talk about from your perspective. I mean, these are all studies I can read, but I really want to hear your perspective because you are in the field on the ground doing this work. You know, what do you think are sort of some of the challenges that we're facing in maternal healthcare for black women, for brown women, women of color? From your perspective, what do you think those challenges are? Yeah, I mean, I think well, there's a couple of things to look at. In the United States, um, this is the most dangerous place in the developed world to give birth. Yes. We have a higher obstetrician ratio to midwifery ratio um, compared to other industrialized nations that have a higher midwifery to obstetrician ratio, which means that birth is perceived globally as non-threatening, as, as a non-emergent you know, event, unless it is an emergency. And here we see it the opposite. We really do see, we do pathologize the process and see it as we need to rescue the baby from the body, right? And we see it as the birthing person and this experience of birth being precarious and needing to be surveilled and needing to be monitored and something could go wrong at any time is really the lens, right? And there's many reasons for that. Obviously, clinically speaking, if you're inside of an institutional setting, there are protections in place for those institutions, right? And so through insurance, you know, legally, people want to also protect themselves from liability. So the type of care you get is compromised by this false sense of safety that is designed to protect the institution. So the institutional goals and the goals of people who go to get care are not aligned, 
right? So my experience of wanting to have, you know, um, wanting to maybe be birthing upright or, you know, my experience of wanting to be moving around the room or to be untethered or not monitored uh, the whole time. Those are things that are going to come into question, you know, because monitoring and surveillance is hallmark for all of our institutions. Because when we look at medicine writ large, but really all institutionalized spaces that, that we occupy, all of them are carceral in nature. So there is already a thread and a through line of, of confinement, of surveillance, of mistrust, of power over, dominance, hazing. Uh, all of these elements like show up in these experiences that people talk about all the time and talk about experiencing directly through their care, whether it's through nurse practitioners, doctors, it could be staff members, but people experience harm that's associated with dismissiveness, you know, not feeling listened to or heard, having rushed care, all these things like contribute to an experience where you don't feel safe, right? But then on top of that, you have people who are under misdiagnosed. You have people who are seen as being, oh, you know, you're complaining or nothing's wrong. So hypochondriac, right? Like seen as not being serious about their care or seen as, oh, you just want drugs, right? So that's why you're here, not really because you're in pain. You know, Black women are often seen as being impervious to pain. And so the idea that they could be experiencing pain or have a higher pain tolerance than white women is a pervasive thought. And so you've all these things that you're like dealing with that are really hallmarks of medical racism and uh, institutional bias that shows up for individuals along different intersections in, uh, in life and how they show up embodied in spaces if they're racialized, right? Also, there's the real experience of medical neglect that um, occurs uh, where, you know, a decision is made that is life-threatening or lethal. And this happens frequently. It happens frequently and people do not have recourse to take action because like policing, you know, medicine and hospitals like also protect, like they, they double down and protect their own. Right. So nobody's going to like push a doctor out there and say, but they stay, they stay in, in line. And so if you want to really see how people, you know, what it looks like to pursue justice and when you, if you really want to see what it looks like to be harmed by someone who operates within one of these institutionalized spaces, you can compare whether it's a school because there's unions, you can't fire teachers, whether it's policing, they get like maybe sent to a different county or something, they still can police. If you're a doctor, you can switch hospitals. You still can practice. There is no actual accountability. And we can see that, right? So for Black people who experience this harm as debilitating, as incapacitating, like impacts what we perceive as our capacity to birth, right? To see that other people are dying or having near-death experiences, that impacts our capacity building as birthing people. It also causes uh, a lot of stress and distress and anxiety to think about that as you're navigating a pregnancy. And it also, as a real experience, does impact our, uh, our communities because they are matrilineal in nature. And so our communities are designed with women at the crux. So when a mother dies, it does distort the community. It does distort the community. So we have uh, a lot of lost potential in our communities from mothers who are gone too soon, who cannot live to raise their children into adulthood. And so while it's a human rights issue, it's also a reproductive justice issue. You know, it is a feminist issue. It's not a feminist agenda, right? But this are, these are things that are really concerning. Uh, 
I think that understanding, though, the the rudiments of our current medical model, how it operates, how we get here, I think is really critical to understand so that people can actually uh, uncover and think about what it does look like to design solutions. Because most of what we're experiencing or sort of trying to understand is through this lens of like a singular event. Like how did this thing happen? Not actually how do we design a system that allows something like this to happen again, right? So uh, what, what does it look like to redesign, to build something different uh, that actually centers the most marginalized? Because that's what's really important. I like to think to like the disability justice work that is happening all the time because, you know, marginalized people always have the best solutions, you know, because nothing is being designed with them in mind. And so, you know, when, when they were working on the Disability Act, one of the pieces was to figure out uh, curb cutting and sidewalks, right? And nobody could understand how we would do that. Oh my God, infrastructurally, how would we do that? What a nightmare. Like, like what are we, how are we going to do this on every curb in the country? And this is a huge thing. And if you're in a wheelchair or if you're on crutches or if you are in some way, shape or form getting to the end of the street and cannot cross because there's not a curb dip in the sidewalk, it can impact your life in a big way, right? Imagine what that does. Like we who can walk comfortably and can move and have mobility, it's really a privilege. And so being able to walk and not think about walking off the end of the curb is, is also something we don't have to ever, you know, think about for now, right? Because we might not be community. But if you are, if you are, you know, in that community, that's a huge thing to to have considered, right? That seems like not a big deal. But what you realize is that when you do the curb cuts, do you know who else benefits? The child that's on a tricycle, the the older woman who's pushing her grocery cart across the street, a woman who's pushing a stroller, right? You know, a, you know, a little kid, you know, trying to, you know, or people who are taking the little kids like out to, you know, walk and they, you know, come off the curb, right? Someone with a puppy trying to cross the street, everybody benefits, right? So people who, it makes all of our lives easier, right? But it's designed for the people that it would be impossible. It'd be impossible for them to have ease in their lives. And so we have to think about it from this perspective of designing for the most marginalized. And so that's how we think about design. That's how we think about solution is what's actually going to make things better for Black women. Because when we do see the disparities for our community, we see the disparities there. So that's what we need to design. That's where we need to put our resources is, is making it better. It doesn't mean that we're only making it better for Black women. What it means is that when we get it right for Black women, it's better for everybody. Right. right? So this is what's important. Yeah. What that's bringing up for me also is that it's sort of this idea of the root cause, which is what we do in integrative medicine, what we do in Ayurveda, right? We look for the root cause. It's not about just dealing with a symptom that shows up. So like you said, the event, right? Oh, something bad happened during a birthing event at the hospital. Let's see what happened there. It's uncovering like, what is the whole system? What is the root cause? What led up to that event happening, right? There's so many other pieces that are involved is what you're talking about. And then it also, and I think your point is a really, really important one, is that when you solve in that way, when you start to look for the root cause, the systems that are in place, you do make it better for everyone by focusing in on the people who are most marginalized. That is a benefit that ends up you know, spreading to everybody, but you're also doing the most important thing, which is helping the people who are at most risk. Right, which is, I think, what you were saying. So I, th- I think that that's really important. Um, so let's talk about doula services. And I think that the first thing we should do is first educate people on what doula services are, and you know what maybe midwifery is, because I know people have heard of midwives, have heard of doulas. They may not know the difference. So let's start with that, and then let's talk about you know how doula services sort of start to become this solution 
that's helping with the root cause to help with the most marginalized in the birthing world? Yeah. So I think I could start with just level setting what a doula is versus a midwife, since there's confusion sometimes there. And I talk to a lot of people who don't know the difference. Even I talk to medical students that don't know the difference. And so very important to help with community as we navigate. Right. So, so a doula is a non-clinical care provider that provides emotional support, physical support, education, advocacy tools, partner support if you have a partner present, and really helps as like a cheerleader, as a, my client calls a producer for your birth, right? Somebody who's really thinking about all the ways in which you need to be supported um, on that journey with you as a companion and a trusted source, not only of information, but a non-judgmental presence of support, right? So they're there to provide like the soft skills, the things that just make you feel good. Uh, the, the midwife is a clinical care provider that does everything from well care along the reproductive life course. They can deliver your baby. They can also provide abortion and loss support as well as menopause support as you transition out of the reproductive life. They are particularly skilled, obviously, at navigating the pelvis and understanding development of pregnancies without high-tech technology. They, they do integrate it, but they also are trained to be able to understand what's happening inside your body without it. And so they do do diagnostic screenings. The midwifery model of care does center the birthing person and or family at the center. And so the model is more circular versus within a clinical model is more of a pyramid with a physician at the top and going down. So that model is, uh, you know, more aligned with autonomy and body sovereignty for the individual who's, who's getting the services and, and really you know, for someone who wants to have a different type of birthing experience. So if you want out of hospital birth, birth center, home birth, these are people who can attend in those environments. There are midwives who also work in hospital settings. They are also in those settings working within the confines of the institutional model, which means that there are constraints around how that care is delivered compared to care at the home level or birth center level. And so how doulas and midwives work together is that they work like, they're like peanut butter and jelly. They work really well. They, I like peanut butter and honey, but they work really well together. They're, they're almost like a team that intuitively supports the client and their needs. Um, the doula will go and make sure everything is ready so that when the midwife arrives, the work that they're doing is really focused on like, you know, the delivery, but also, you know, taking notes, giving some time for the parents to rest. The doula will help the midwife almost like an assistant, you know, and in a home setting or in a birth center setting. Um, and so they kind of work really well because they have the same philosophy around birth, generally speaking, are really aligned in that way. In some cases, a midwife might take on a doula role in a hospital setting if there's a transfer. So if you're in a home birth environment or a birth center, you have to transfer to the hospital for whatever reason, say it, like there's a perceived emergency. If you're transferring, then the physician or the attending who's going to see you um, will now assume the role of your care because now it's a high stakes situation. The, the midwife at that point transfers into the person who's now becoming your support, right? So you can have instances where midwife will assume the role of a doula, but typically speaking, they are delivering your care as clinical professionals. And so the final thing I'll say about the difference between midwife and doula is that the, well, one of the things that I love is that they can work together and do work very well together. And midwives typically in like a clinical setting can also help us to maintain, I think, some of the desires and wishes that might be part of our birth preferences or birth plan, but also really are people who typically are aligned, right, with how you're thinking, navigating the birth as well. And so 
there's a natural belief in capacity building around the body and your ability to to labor and really an understanding that you know our bodies are designed to do this and so there's there's already that sort of ethos right you know that they carry with them and so makes for like a better experience right where you just feel more supported and so um, you know what doulas are doing in terms of services that's different is when you're getting care from a midwife, it is like getting care from your clinician, right? So you are getting prenatal appointments, right? So all that stuff is happening just like it would with your doctor. On the doula side, the support is sort of more around skill building, knowledge building, you know, really about supporting you in organizational skills as you prepare for the baby. It is designing systems for you so that you're prepared on the other side. It is learning about like some of your areas of vulnerability, like, oh, I'm really not good at speaking up for myself, or I have trouble like, you know, talking to my parents about certain things. It's like challenging some of those things about ourselves and like, you know, making space to have better communication, better and stronger relationships so that on the other side, you know, we're able to navigate this experience and feel really supported regardless of the outcome. It's also preparing us for all outcomes, right? So Ideally, people want a vaginal delivery. They want to have this blissful birth that they've like dreamt. And, you know, for some people that happens and for some people, they have a different birth experience. It doesn't have to be traumatic just because it's difficult. Right. And so we want to make sure that also, regardless of what type of experience people have, that they do feel safety. They do feel dignified. That they do feel empowered on the other side of those experiences. And so so doulas can help to anchor people in that safety and that dignity and that connection, that belonging. They can help people feel prepared for whatever is going to happen. They can help people reorient around a scenario that's gone the different direction they hoped for. And they can also help people process the labor experience. So a lot of what we're doing is around soft skills and, and really about emotional, psychological, spiritual support, ritualizing and creating a container of safety around the people who are navigating this process. Right. Which is all so beautiful and so incredibly important and, and harkens back to sort of what we were talking about in our own experiences growing up in our communities of that was the support we got from the other women in our family, yeah. you know, the friends, the community that was that support. And so, you know, how do you think that the role of a doula or the services of a doula help to improve maternal health outcomes for Black women, for women of color? How do you, how do you think that that plays out um, in the outcomes from your experience? Yeah, well, we have data. We, we do have a lot of data that shows the, the impact of doula support. And so we have a reduction in cesarean sections, an increase in vaginal deliveries, a reduction in the use of uh, pitocin augmentation. We have an incre- a reduction in use of epidural. We have higher rates of breastfeeding and chest feeding and more maternal satisfaction on the other side of birth. Yeah, less incidence of traumatic birth, right? Or perceived tra- traumatic birth. So, you know, we have all of this is across the board and obviously depending on like what demographic you're studying and over what period of time you know, those numbers will be different, but across the board, like that's what we see in terms of um, efficacy. And when we're thinking about just in general, my experience, and then also, because I don't practice as a doula really anymore. I maybe do like one or two births a year. I've done hundreds of births, but really an educator and a professor. So it's not something I can do anymore. But I will say that what we see in New York as Mama Glow Foundation is the largest provider of pro bono doula services in New York. And so we see tons of information that indicates that having a doula present along the pregnancy continuum, but also well into postpartum, well into postpartum is aligned with not only positive birth outcomes, but also, you know, positive uh, mental health on the other side. And so that's another thing that we're seeing too, is that um, post COVID, a lot of people need also mental health support, really ensure that people have community care models in place before their babies arrive and also have resources. And there are a lot of social services, you know, available to people. It's hard to find them, honestly, but 
but there are social services available to people. And we know that through our ability to provide pro bono doula services, there are people who would not necessarily have had access to doulas now have it. And and they have it for a protracted period of time because typically if you were doing um, private hire doulas, you would maybe get like two, three, two or three postnatal visits. And in this, this model that we have at the city, it's multiple visits. And so people spend so much time with their doula postpartum, which also means that we can look for and screen for things like depression and anxiety. You know, we can look out for, you know, signs of, you know, maladjustment that we wouldn't be able to do if, if the time was shorter, right? And so that's another thing that's really beautiful about some of the programs that are also sprouting up is a, an attention to the idea that like, it's not just a pregnancy we want to monitor, but postpartum is a really critical period. It's important to be able to make sure people are supported. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you think are some of the barriers to women actually accessing doula services? I mean, there's the cost, but then, you know, what are some of the barriers that you see given that it's so effective in helping women across the pregnancy continuum and postpartum? What are some of the barriers that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, cost comes up for many people. Mm -hmm. Um, You're doing out of pocket. If there's no insurance coverage, we're thankful to be involved in some insurance pilots and also helping to create doula benefits so people can get the cost covered. But yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is cost for most people, Um, a lack of awareness. I think a lot of people understand what doulas are, but like I'm in a space where it's around me. So I don't know what that means. If I'm like in Kansas or if I'm in I don't know, some other place, like, is it common? So, and even if the concept is common, are there collectives, are there accessible doulas, right, in those spaces? So I think we still have maternity deserts in this country. So that does mean that even if there is an awareness, doesn't mean that we have access, right? So I think that's one thing to to address. But yeah, mostly, you know, I would say that, um, yeah, we're in a situation where there's a lot of, a lot of need. And, and the, the, there isn't a lot of practitioners available because again, we're just now coming to a space in this country where doulas are on the federal agenda. Um, what it does mean is there's a lot of people who have these skills and have to be, and then they're trying to find a way to, uh, credentialize and then professionalize doulas. And there's a lot of resistance to that because people have already been doing this work for so long. Like, how is the state going to say whether a training is, you know, accessible or does make, you know, it doesn't make sense to really like put more constraints and more paperwork on people who've been doing the work. But I think what does need to happen is finding a way to, you know, pay for and also commercialize market and make accessible the language the services through various pathways, right? We know that people use their phones, so there should be you know, ways to, to call and have someone on the line, to chat with somebody on text, to you know, be with video calling with someone. And obviously these are privately available services, right? You can find these things on apps, but you know, like the government, right, should develop like a platform where these things can happen, you know, or fund the people who are also developing these things to to do them within you know the confines of their communities right which is already happening in the private sector right so i think that like obviously you know legislative and policy spaces take so long to catch up and and government takes so long to catch up and so you do need to look to you know industry where these things are happening but yeah the barriers for many people is like lack of awareness and then cost but there are a lot of community-based doulas. So you can get pro bono doula service support. You can't get sliding scale. There are people who will say, look, I can't do it because I'm not accessible or affordable, but this person can. And so there is a there is that, you know, but you do have to do the work. And I think a lot of people will, you know, they'll 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 do the things like they're gonna buy a car. They'll do all this research about a car or a house or a vacation and do all this research about the place they're going. And then when it comes to having a baby, it'll be like, well, you know, like they won't take the time and energy to like interview doulas. It's like, are you serious? It's not that difficult to get on the phone with some people to figure out if you're aligned value wise, right? There's information everywhere. One thing I would say is we have a really cool guide called Birthing While Black that we developed in partnership with Carol's daughter. 
60 pages of like relevant information that's like downloadable. And it's a guide that's for your phone. And you can just pull up information to navigate pregnancy. It's for anybody, but it was designed really with like, you know, marginalized folks in mind, particularly Black women in mind. And so I would say that that's a great thing to download from the Mama Foundation website. We also have done a lot of incredible research on birth worker burnout. And one of the things that also makes doulas inaccessible is that they leave the workforce, right? And so burnout is also on the agenda for the Surgeon General, you know, so this is like, you know, a real issue across industries in the care space, right? And so we look at healthcare, we see nurses, we've like 25% of nurses have left the workforce. So it is a huge problem in this country. So one thing to be thinking about, right, is what does it look like to also fortify the, the workforce? And so that's what we do at Mama Glow with caring for our doulas and making sure that they have access to supports to continue doing the work. You know, we make sure that they're paid fairly, but then we also, you know, make sure they have spaces to like process, you know, what they're going through as people who are navigating lived experiences, right, that are challenging. And so I would say the report that we did was really, really important and has been widely cited. It's called Birth Worker Burnout. And you can also go to the Mongolia Foundation to, to get that. But one of the things that we have to think about as we move forward is that, you know, care is always like adaptive. And so it's really about, you know, understanding the needs of the people who are saying what they need and designing around those needs, not designing we want to design for them. Asking how can we support you in the way you want to be supported? And then we make the design. What's happening now is we are designing this thing for you without your input, right? And so oftentimes it'll be here's the meeting where we tell you how it's going to work instead of here's the meeting where we discuss together and make a decision about how to move forward, right? That's not how we're operating. And so unfortunately what happens is so much, so many resources get poured into things that were not ever tested, consulted by, or with people who are marginalized and people who are affected by these, you know, issues in mind. And so people are creating solutions that don't serve anybody. So I would also say it's important if folks have interest or desire to enter the space or or peripheral to the space, or just want to be helpful that you don't have to go create anything new. You don't have to go and, you know, try to, you know, go fix the problem by yourself or, or cut in front of people. You, all you have to do is find the people in your community, find people in your community who are problem solving and pour into them with resources. You might be a lawyer, you might be a graphic designer, you might be a publicist, you might be a business person, you might just be a really great volunteer. You might be somebody who, you know, is is off work right now or who got, you know, laid off or whatever, and you have some time. Pour into the people who are already doing this work and bring your resources to support in your community to make birth safer. Because on a national level, there's work being done, but the real work happens inside of our communities where we can make tangible impact. And so I encourage people to figure out like what are the local institutions, birthing centers, midwives and doulas on the ground where they're at, support them, you know, pay for somebody to go through doula training, you know, invest in midwifery care, pay for some people to get midwifery care, like, you know, donate to a midwifery fund, right? I would say also contact your local electeds, make sure that you're connected to what's happening within the hospital system where you live, Right. What are your electeds doing? What is maternal health? What kind of maternal health policies do they have or are they working on, right? Make sure that you are part of those discussions because that is how we advocate whether or not we're pregnant. Like, I don't know if I'm going to have any more children. My son's 20. I don't know if I'm having more. That's not up to me, right? (laughs) But, But what I would say is I can still advocate. I can still do things to make birth better for other people. And so each of us can do that. And each of us has a responsibility to do that. Because we can't just put it on people who are pregnant alone. We can't just put it on Black women and women of color alone. We have to make this be an issue that impacts all of us and it's important to all of us. Right. I think everything that you said is so important. And what I'm thinking about, you know, because I'm a physician is, you know, the role of physicians. And so what message do you have for healthcare providers who are in this space and in 
improving inclusivity and sensitivity to the issues in maternal health care for Black women, for brown women? What would be some of your advice? I love this question because I have the privilege of working with so many healthcare practitioners. And, you know, through the NIH, we have a grant to work with Northwell Health where we train their nursing staff in our doula training. So they have doula competency, uh, which I think is so important. We're doing a longitudinal study. And, and so that study will also like look at the, the program that I've developed and also like how we can impact care within these institutional settings, right? We're also doing work with Montefiore Medical Center where we have a, a HRSA grant with them to look at the impact of doula support on populations impacted by trauma. And so we have to work together, right? What I see is important is really to be open-minded and to like interrogate what comes up for us around the feelings that surface, the, because what I find is like first defensiveness, like, oh, that's not, sorry, that's like, I don't want to own that part of, you know, the medical story or the history, right? I, that's not me, right? But it's like, it's not about that. It's really about like, well, as an individual who's invested in and operating within a system, like how can we look at how that system is functioning and see how we can do things differently or better? Um, how can we improve on and actually expand upon our skill sets, right? So if I went to medical school, there's a lot of things that I didn't learn, right? And that's okay. That's okay, right? Like, right? Everybody learned, there's a, there's a right? There's a kind of, um, I mean, there's a, there's a ceiling to what you can learn inside of a time frame. Right? We understand. So because of that, though, it means that ongoing education is important and continuing to improve on that education is important. And so that's why we develop CMEs, you know, so that doctors can continue their education and CEUs for like different other care practitioners. We developed a, an amazing program for nurse care managers with Aetna CBS. Uh, to train them and do a competency for CEUs. And it was 100% attended because they were getting that credit, but they gained something that they didn't know they were coming for. And so what I would encourage is that if you are proximate to birthing individuals, pregnant people, people who are navigating high-risk pregnancy, like wherever people are, go take some courses outside and that are not provided necessarily by your hospital or your, you know, your, your institution, but like look into other spaces and go learn from people um, of marginalized identities, right? Like go learn from queer folk, go learn from black folk, go learn from, you know, POC folk, right? Go learn from everybody so that you can, uh, you know, integrate a different perspective and bring softer skills, but also empathy into your work in ways that are necessary. Now, when I talk about empathy, like I don't want a surgeon, right? When they are, you know, cutting me open to be empathizing, I want them to be right, like surgical. But before they cut me open, I want them to sit on my bed and I want them to just hold my wrist and rub, you know, rub the inside of my wrist sit with me and look me in the eye and talk to me the course of care. I want for cesarean, for people who are going to be in the OR to walk over and to sit and say, you know, I know this is not what you wanted. And, and yet this is where we are. And I'd like to know, how can we make you feel comfortable in the room? There are some things in your control. What music do you want to have playing? Would you like to have, would you like to see the birth? Would you not, you know, would like, like there are some things that we can do to make it more humane, right? So that I can feel dignified in the experience, right? Like these are ways in which we can improve the experience and put hospitality into hospitals, right? It's a way that we can also think about like how someone recalls the experience because what doulas do is we think about, we're so invested in actually the memory of your experience. That's actually my job is to think about how you will remember it, how you will recall it and the story you will tell. And so I'm invested in that story. And I'm invested in how you tell that story. And if more physicians were invested in how someone tells the story of their experience, they would do care differently, right? So we have to think about care from this lens of an individual experience that is life-altering, 
And, but it could also be life affirming. And so let's make it life affirming and let's think about ways in which we can honor what's happening for everyone out in the world, but at the same time, lean into, lean into our own responsibility to continue to self-develop, self-improve and, and bring in and harness these new skills so that we can do care differently. And that will change the culture of our medical spaces, right? Like that. So if individuals work together to do things differently, that actually shifts institutional culture. And that's what we would like to see, right? And I think that's possible, right? So I love working hand in hand with physicians. I love working hand in hand with nurses. I love working with staff around these, these goals because I know that they're possible. Like we can do it differently. It's a choice. And so I would love to see the the advice that I would have would be to, you know, invest in, like I said, marginalized education, education from marginalized people who are doing this work that are that are able to come into your spaces to teach you or you go into their spaces to be taught and and honoring that work and and then and then figuring out ways to like bring it in right so how can we bring this work in not just taking like oh check i took the anti racist class right. 2 hours back right not this because we're talking about hundreds of years of framework that's embedded in our institutions you're not doing you're not undoing that in a 2 hour course but what you can do is you can start to engage over time reading workshops exercises dialogue right? Podcasts, you're in one right now, right? Like really using these tools that are available to you and, and seeking the teachers, right? Seeking the work. We have an amazing training program. It's in person finally for the first time this year in April, but then it's also online and widely accessible. And so there isn't an excuse, right? If you want to do it, you can. And if you want to do this for yourself, and I would also say, because a lot of us orient around, okay, I'm doing this for other people. No, do it for yourself. Do it for yourself because when you do it for yourself, when you show up for yourself in this way, I'm going to dedicate this time to learn these things. It will spill out onto everyone. That's just like part of it, right? So that would be my, my, my sincere hope and my prayer more than my advice. It would be my prayer that people do that work so that we can make things better because we can't rely on like an institution itself to make this change, the board, you know, the, the investors or, or even, you know, the, the lawyers and the insurance, like we can't, we have to rely on individuals to say, I can, I can change this moment, this interaction, this one, I can make it better. And so that's what I would like to see. And I would like to see, you know, more people being held accountable and also more people feeling like they have the safety to bring practitioners to account when things happen that, you know, should be spoken out about. People have to feel safe to be able to say something and surface that information. And so I I hope that we can also create what I would love, like in a dream world, would be a safety net also for people who are whistleblowing, right? So that we can um, also make our institutions safer. Yeah. So your point about, you know, learning as much as you can, going to the people doing the work and learning from them, I think it's so important. It's important in every aspect of healthcare. I mean, it's important in the work I do. And I think that that, again, is where you are looking at the root cause. Because when you're in there learning from people who are doing the work, who are in the most marginalized communities, you're learning about the issues that are present, about the root causes for the problems and that you are seeing in the delivery room, in the OR, as a physician anyway, right? That's where you're learning that. You're not going to learn it by reading a book. You'll get some information, but you're really going to understand what the issues are, what the root causes are. Again, we're going back to sort of where we started this whole conversation is really getting to you know, the systems to the things that are causing the problems and not just looking at the one incident. That's important, of course, like you said, but it is important to look at the whole system and, you know, where is where are all these issues coming from? Where are the outcomes that we're seeing coming from? Because it's not just from the one incident of the actual birth experience. Yes, it's embedded in that, but there's so many other factors that led up to that. Right. So I think it's so important. And so 
I am actually going to commit on this podcast to actually coming to your training. You know, I'm not in the OR or, you know, birthing any babies or anything like that as a physician, but I do think it's important in the work that I do as well to really understand more. Even though I'm a South Asian woman, a brown woman, it's still important for me to understand the issues that you as a black woman face, that, you know, my sisters who are Latino, who are Native American, other people of color, queer folk, I need to understand that more. So I'm going to come to your training as well so that I can learn more from the people doing the work. So bless you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to see your space, which brings me to my last question for you, (laughs) which is what is next for Mama Glow? Tell us about all of the things you're doing. And, you know, for the listeners, we will link all of these resources in the show notes as as well as some of the resources and studies that Latham talked about. I'll make sure that we link those in the show notes so that it's easy for you guys to find that information. But tell us about Mama Glow and what's happening for you guys. So Mama Glow is doing so much. We have our annual doula expo, which you can learn more about on doulaexpo.com, which is our amazing culture shifting sort of festival. It's like Coachella for birth workers and families. People should come check that out. We love that space. We have amazing brand partners like CVS Health and Nanit and Coterie and all these amazing companies that you can interact with, but also there's amazing content. And so come check that out with us. That's this spring. We also have upcoming childbirth education for professionals that want to kind of go back through that path and understand how to support people through childbirth ed, but then also to bring that work into their doula work or whatever work they're doing along the care continuum. Obviously, we have doula trainings coming in person and online. Where we have also a restorative justice infant feeding program, which really is about bringing people of color to a training to learn skills, CLC skills for lactation, primarily people who've been locked out of that work and the ability to do that work. So I'm excited about that. And then we have the soft space, which is a new, amazing, um, it's a wellness oasis and education space and really like the home for all of our programming. And I'm just thankful because it's really a dream realized. And we were able to, you know, find this gorgeous space that has, you know, a kitchen, a library, it has like a retail area And it has this gorgeous sanctuary where we do our programming and it's right in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So it's one stop from on the L train and one block from the L train. So it's no excuses. You can get there really fast from Manhattan. And, and we're just grateful, you know, it's a beautiful space and it is really about, you know, finding a way to create soft places for us to land, you know, Uh, especially because the world is so much about you know, moving fast and at an accelerated pace. This is about slowing down and being in the posture of ease, really. Like that's our mantra to like embrace the energy of ease. And the soft space is all about that. And so it's available for life events, rentals, things like that too, which we have a lot of. A lot of people do retreats there. And so it's a great place for that. But but come visit us, come check out the programming. Uh, we would love to see everybody in person as well. Just yeah. give you a hug. I I will be there. Next time I'm in New York, I will definitely stop by. And I just have one last question. I know that we're at time that I always end most of my interviews with, which is, you know, if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? Uh, For me, catalyzing healing um, feels so, so good to say, because what comes up for me is leaning into ancestral wisdom, leaning into our capacity to, to heal and make whole. And, um, I think it's about, uh, action, you know, healing is so, so amazing because part of it is just happening to us, but then there's also, I think when you talk about catalyzing, it's happening through us. It's like mm-hmm. us also being agents and having agency in our healing. And so that's what comes up for me when you when you ask that. Yeah. Latham, thank you so much. This has been an amazing time. I appreciate all of the amazing work that you're doing. I have so much respect for you. And 
I've learned so much. Thank you for educating me and for being so generous and uh, loving in the way that you present things and talk about things. It's really, really wonderful. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for the invitation, Dr. Monty. Appreciate you and can't wait to see you soon. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.